have you been back here a number of times? Uh, I've only driven by here once. Um, I've never came here and actually sat here. Detective Dan Bright is sitting by the side of a quiet Colorado road. He's in a wheelchair. He's talking with my colleague, John Ferruja. So this is not easy for you? Right. Yeah, my anxiety level is a little high right now. From where the Douglas County Sheriff's detective sits, he has a clear view of the spot where a suicidal man shot him more than three years ago. It's just a really weird feeling just knowing that um, this was the last place where I was healthy and, and I was able to walk and I was able to carry on my life. Although being in this place brings anxiety rushing back for Detective Bright, he has very few memories of what happened here. You know, in the hospital, just waking up, my wife telling me, you know, honey, you've been shot. And I was trying to search for that memory. And the only thing I can remember was driving back from Texas, because about a, a week prior, I uh, was in SWAT training in Texas and we were driving back. And all my brain could recall was just that situation of me driving back with uh, some of my SWAT team. So then I started thinking, no, I wasn't shot. I was in a car accident, like, because that's the last thing I could remember. Detective Bright has read the police reports and talked with the people who were there, not only trying to recover his memories, but to quiet a nagging voice that told him he might have done something wrong that day. But also, logically, you now know you did everything right. Right. I mean, you know that. Right. It's just, you can't feel that. Right. Sometimes. Right. Yeah, it, you know, and, it, and that didn't come easy for a very long time. I'd say almost a year after the incident. Um, I, I was very angry at um, just the situation and people and, and myself. And, um, and it took me a while to finally figure out that, you know, after, after reading everything and talking to people, that I, I did everything that we were supposed to do. And, um, you know, it, there's just some things that you have no control over, but what you can control is, is how you react, you know? And it took me a while to learn that too, is, um, the way I was reacting was damaging my family and myself. And um, finally realizing that, you know what, I'm no longer gonna let the situation control me. I'm gonna control it and use it for a better purpose, for something bigger than me. I'm Brittany Freeman. I'm a producer on a TV news show called Insight with John Ferruja on Rocky Mountain PBS. This month on the Insight podcast, we've been focusing on officer-involved shootings and the toll that those incidents can take on the police who pull a trigger. In this final episode of our series, we're asking what law enforcement agencies in Colorado are doing to be proactive and help their officers deal with the stresses of the job outside of those critical shooting incidents. That has become Detective Dan Bright's focus since he returned to work from his devastating injury. But you're also now able to help other people deal with this. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I found my purpose, uh, eventually found my purpose, and that is in helping others that have struggled with similar situations, whether it be depression, anxiety, or suicidal thoughts, uh, and, and really helping them understand that there is a much better and healthier way of dealing with these issues, um, and that I'm, I'm a living example of, of what that looks like. Detective Bright now runs the wellness program at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. 
His work starts with prospective deputies training in the academy. Once they're on the job, Bright helps steer them to peer support or mental health professionals if they need someone to talk to. In our first episode, we heard from Deputy Ronnie Durrell. He struggled after being involved in two shootings in less than two years. Durrell credits Detective Bright for putting him on the path to getting mental health treatment. And I started talking with uh, Dan, and Dan had started being more open with his struggles that he went through after his shooting. So I started talking with him, and he asked me, he's like, are you doing okay? And finally, I just dropped my armor, essentially, and I said, no. I said, I'm not. You know, for me, talking to Dan, he made it okay for me to go talk to somebody. And so without that, I don't know if I would have. And then I would just keep having that vicious cycle of the anger and the irritableness and the lack of emotion that I would show because I would just keep it bottled up and and sooner or later it's going to come out. The wellness program Bright Runs doesn't focus only on critical incidents like shootings. It offers financial planning courses, marriage retreats, access to personal trainers, even puppy yoga sessions. The concept is to promote overall wellness, to have healthier deputies who make more effective law enforcement officers. And Bright's message is spreading. Another great program that we've been emulating is the one through Douglas County. That's La Plata County Sheriff's Lieutenant Pat Downs. I don't know if you've spoken with anybody from Douglas County, but they've been a great help to us in getting our program off the ground. Lieutenant Downs mentioned Bright's program while talking with me about his department's brand new wellness efforts. Their program is obviously very robust and very uh, much larger than what we anticipate doing given the size of their agency to our agency. The La Plata County Sheriff's Department has about 130 employees. That's far fewer than Douglas County's. Staffing constraints mean that they can't devote a full-time employee to wellness, but they still felt like they needed to do something. We've had tragedy in our agency in the past few years. We've, we've had uh, deputy suicides that have happened. We've had other things that have gone on. And we just really, um, you know, the, the sheriff and the command staff really wanted to try to do whatever we could to improve everybody's uh, ability to deal with some stuff. Allison Brown-Cole is running the department's new program. She told me about her plans to organize activities for officers and their families to encourage healthy home lives. You know, health doesn't just mean, um, you know, skin and bones. It means your heart and your soul. And when officers know that leadership is supportive of them taking care of those aspects of their personal and professional aspects of life, it pays tremendous dividends, both in terms of their own sense of wellness and well-being, but then it translates back out to the community very positively as well. Some law enforcement agencies across the country are trying programs like these to help prevent suicide, since people who work in public safety seem to be at a higher risk. The question is, do financial planning courses and family activities and peer support groups actually reduce suicide risk? I would say to you, Brittany, that data on whether uh, wellness and resiliency programs are decreasing risk for suicide is just not where it should be. So I, I don't think 
some departments are going to be collecting that, but I, I haven't seen much to that. Dr. Heidi Carr is a trauma psychologist with the Education Development Center in Boston. They're working on a project funded by the federal government to create a national officer safety initiative aimed at suicide prevention. And they're finding that evidence is sometimes tough to come by. There's no central official data collection detailing how often police officers die by suicide, and not enough research yet on the effectiveness of wellness programs on the national level. I spoke with Dr. Carr and her colleague, Jennifer Myers, about what is known about reducing suicide risk factors. If you can increase protections like connections, a sense of purpose or belonging, or increasing access to mental health care, increasing supports for trauma, then you may be able to reduce that risk. We know law enforcement often doesn't talk about what they experience in their day-to-day work at home because there's often a boundary there. And so having a peer that you might be able to connect with about either traumas or even just challenges of day-to-day work may allow for someone to have uh, the connectedness instead of isolating and dealing with that on their own. But also having a peer say, I've gone to counseling or I needed help with that difficult situation I was dealing with, whether it was at work or in their personal life, can really increase the possibility that someone would go to get mental health treatment themselves and therefore um, hopefully reduce their risk. Dr. Carr worked on suicide prevention for Veterans Affairs. She sees parallels between the challenges the VA has faced and what law enforcement leaders across the country are trying to do now. VA has led the movement of integrating mental health into primary care. And the reason that's so important is it destigmatizes mental health. So anyone's going to come and see their doctor if they break their foot, right, or if their tooth is hurting. There's no stigma about seeking help for that. If a lot of the attention goes to making it streamlined, to sit down with the, the police psychologist twice a year, like just time on your birthday, you know, whatever, to have a session, integrating mental health providers into the work, uh, developing peer support groups that are not just developed when there's a crisis or when, when there's a loss in the department, but are part of the fabric of the department, you're going to get the absolute best outcomes because people know when they're at risk. People absolutely know if they are close to um, acting on suicidal thoughts. And so if you can empower people to feel safe at seeking help early, that's really where the bang for the buck is. I wanted to know what Denver police are doing to provide this kind of support. So I headed to the department's training academy and met Sergeant Bobby Waitler. I'm the coordinator of multiple resiliency programs that we have in the department. Resiliency, wellness, peer support, chaplains, physical therapy, and reintegration programs. Denver police are reeling from the loss of both active and retired officers to suicide in recent years. That's why Sergeant Wadler recently led a push for DPD to make sure every officer carries around the phone number for the suicide prevention hotline everywhere they go. I was thinking of what can we do, maybe have like a sticker or something on our on our weapon, here's the phone number. So I went to my lieutenant and said, help me with this, I'm stuck. What do officers carry all the time? He said, their ID cards. Brilliant. Beyond that emergency number, 
Wadler says Denver police officers and their immediate families have access to outside psychologists who specialize in working with police, and they're paid by the city. Police psychologists, culturally competent, trauma-informed, which is critical, which is critical to earn trust and relationship building and respect with the officers. When they go to speak to one of the counselors, they know they speak our same language. They know that when they download or share some of their their struggles, that that counselor understands it and gets it, is non-judgmental. And DPD has decided that another way to address suicide risk is to talk about it openly, try to get rid of the stigma. My name is Brian V. Barry. I'm a Denver police officer and I'm in my 36th year of community service. We had an officer we put on video to share his story of PTSD. Then in July of 2018, my brother-in-law, who was also a Denver police officer of 28 years, decided to take his own life. The chief made it mandatory view for all the officers to see. Then upon finding him, things were set in motion in my mind that I could not get back. And I had an officer two weekends ago call me in crisis and say, I knew the officer who, who killed themselves that this officer, Brian, mentioned. And because of Brian's courage for standing in front of all of his officers, the 1,600 officers in the department, and sharing his story, this 31-year veteran, I know, I know I need to find some help. I was advised of a PTSD retreat that was being put together, done with the blessing of the department. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It saved my life. Because it showed me that with all the things that have happened in my life, since I was a kid all the way up to today, there is nothing that can't be overcome. That you can still find joy happiness. That's where I can see cultures are changing because the feedback Brian has received and that we have received in support of Brian saying that was so long overdue. That was so needed for us to see that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay from the chief's mouth too. You're not going to be punished. There might be some treatment that comes from this, but that's all to help save your own life, your quality life, your relationships, your health. So yes, it's it's definitely it's definitely trending in the right direction, but we still have we still have a, w- a little bit to go. We we do. Wadler is often seen around DPD's training academy with his golden retriever, Sammy. Good boy, get your ball. Sammy's a therapy dog, and he's way too well trained to bark on command. Good boy. I wish you can bark when I told you to. Give me a paw. Thank you. I love, I love walking around with him and seeing the reaction. Because you know how he, just like when you walked in, you see, it's, you just change, your mindset changes, and you become a little bit less guarded and less in self-defense mode, and you're a little bit more open. There are a lot of reasons why an officer might end up spending time with Sammy and Sergeant Wadler. Maybe they're dealing with a substance abuse issue, recovering from a physical injury, or they've been referred for some extra help from a colleague or a supervisor. Denver is one of several departments around the state that use data collected on officers to flag potential warning signs. 
Commander Hans Levin told me that DPD's system tracks three specific categories of incidents, uses of force, weapon discharges, and complaints. When officers reach certain thresholds in those categories, they have to talk to a supervisor. Some of the, the biggest issues we have, obviously, that affects trust with the community is use of force incidents. Obviously, we want to try to, um, you know, reduce liability to the city, uh, make sure that if there is some underlying issue that it doesn't progress to something worse. So am I correct in saying that this is kind of, this is a tool to detect when someone may need help before they, they realize that they might need help? Yes, yeah, I think in a nutshell, you're, you're correct on that. I, I'm sure there's a lot of things that would fall through the cracks. And this just gives us the opportunity to try to address uh, any issues before, you know, they, they get worse. DPD says these reviews don't trigger punishment, but they might lead to more training or a change in their assignment or shift. Or officers might be steered to Sergeant Wadler's office. So that was something that While he was sitting with Wadler, one officer knocked on his door. And right away he sent out an email to everybody. I encourage everybody, go down and go get a, a new ID card right now so that we can get this information in everybody's hands. He peeked his head in and then left when he saw our microphones. Right. Do you want to check on him? He's, he's one of our officers in the reintegration program, so he was just oh. checking in okay. on, you know, we have these daily little check-ins. Yeah. So that's all that was. Reintegration is what DPD calls its process for returning to work after an officer-involved shooting. And that process has evolved a lot. Years ago, officers would return to work after just a couple of days and a visit to a police psychologist. And if there was appropriate reactions and they weren't suffering anything obvious, their sleep or their anger or their appetite, or no nightmares or flashbacks. Within those three days, day number four, they would return back to work. And I was one of those officers. Back in 2002 or three, involved in a shooting, day four, I was back to work, working a solo car on midnight. And this is still very fresh and raw. Sergeant Whaler says about seven years ago, the department changed course in the opposite direction, keeping officers off the street for a whole lot longer. That would last six, seven, eight, nine months. And the effects, the negative effects of that were damaging, damaging to officers' identity. They weren't wearing their uniforms. They weren't allowed to take any police action. They weren't allowed to, to participate and to contribute really anymore. And we thought at the time that was, that was the right thing. We thought we were protecting the officer. So it wasn't out of malice. It was, well, that, that's what departments were doing. So about a year and a half ago, we have a new chief came in, Chief Pazin, and we had conversations and we said we have to do better. Now there's a different approach. We do things gradually to slowly return the officer back to full duty when they're going to work a car on their own again, but we give them eight weeks total before they are on their own again. Officers now spend three days on administrative leave, then check in with a police psychologist. After that, they return to the police academy to help new recruits and to help themselves. So in steps, they come here and then we give them information courses. They get continuing education classes, webinars, online courses. They get exercise every day. We, we just give you a chance to take a critical pause, a tactical pause in your life, in your career where you're off the street, you're out of uniform and you get to work on you personally and professionally. After about a month at the academy, they return to their assigned district to continue the process by getting career advancement training. 
So they'll get that for two weeks to four weeks. Then after that, they'll go and work with a partner of their choice that they're comfortable with in a two officer car for a minimum of three weeks. So again, when they go on their first call back into uniform on the street on their normal shift, chances are Murphy's Law, that first call that they receive is gonna be very, very similar to the one that provoked that shooting. So it's nice that they actually have support right next to them in the police car. So you mentioned that you had your own experience in it with a shooting mm-hmm. and you went back to work after four days. Is that? Yeah. Looking back on that, was that too soon? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's too soon. I would I will say I don't feel any after effects of it now, 17 years later. But realistically, four days, it, it is. It's still so new and raw and scary that especially you, you work a solo police car in the middle of the night and you have to go down a dark alley. And, you know, if you give someone the option to say, hey, how do you feel? You want to go back? You know, four days, you're ready to go back. You, you, you're allowed to. Do you want to? Who's going to really say, no, I, I can use some more time? So, of course, what is everybody going to say? No, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine. And we hear that all the time. And what I've learned is fine is an acronym for feelings I'm not expressing. So, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Because no one wants to be that person to say, yeah, can we please slow this down? I'm not ready. Well, now everybody is not ready. We're making sure everybody slows down and we give everybody the same treatment. So we reduce that stigma. This conversation that I had with Sergeant Wadler was one of many that I had with people in law enforcement all across the state who, unprompted, told me about their own experience of shooting someone on the job. These stories were really hard to hear, but across the board, I picked up on a common theme. Everyone I've talked to who's been in a shooting has said that they went back too soon. Do you think that that's uh, the norm? Yeah, I think it is the norm. So I think it's very telling with those testimonials when you were just mentioning some of those people saying that. You know, what, what has sat with them now for all these years? And has that contributed to poor relationships, divorces, poor relationships with their children, financial stress, post-traumatic stress, or maybe reaching a clinical diagnosis of a disorder, maybe anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse for numbing and coping and self-soothing? That, that's, that's really enlightening that people are saying that. So then it's validating for us that, yes, we're on the right path. We're doing what officers want. I think we're definitely still in the minority. And because of staffing issues, a lot of times too, officers are requested or asked or urged to go back to the street to fill that that seat, that police car. So to actually intentionally slow it down is pretty bold of, of a move by the chiefs to say, you know what, you matter. And we see you and we realize we have a duty to help you and to help heal you The experts that I talked with said support after a shooting is important for everyone involved. But it should also come in a setting where mental health care is encouraged and available all the time, not just after a critical incident. The reality is, if we are creating the kind of cultures that support people to seek help when they need it, that is the key. If we can create cultures in departments where officers are like, okay, you know, my my wife just left me, 
my kid has this chronic health condition and my supervisor is telling me there's no flexibility in the schedule. So there's, you know, there's no one to take this kid to the doctor. What am I going to do? I mean, no one's going to know that those, that person's, you know, personal critical incidents are piling up and they may not have involved in any kind of shooting, but they may be much closer to the, to the point of hopelessness than someone who has just come out of a officer-involved shooting. I think that's the, the really complicated piece that often gets forgotten. If you or someone you know is in crisis or thinking of suicide, help is available 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. Thanks for listening to this series of the Insight Podcast. This is just one part of a long commitment at Rocky Mountain PBS to reporting on mental health. Our next project is about youth suicide prevention, and it's just getting underway. So if you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and keep an eye out for our next series. The Insight Podcast is a production of Rocky Mountain Public Media. I produced this episode... Our audio editor is Jason Patton. Our story editor is Paul Caroli. Additional support provided by Lizzie Goldsmith and the rest of the team at House of Pod. Thanks also to our Insight team at Rocky Mountain PBS. Our VP of Journalism is Laura Frank. Our managing editor is John Ferrugia. Our photojournalist is Jason Foster. Our TV episode was produced by Phil Maravilla. Our director of content is Sam Cohen. And our CEO is Amanda Mountain. You can watch our television program and read more about this story on our website, rmpbs.org. Be sure to subscribe to Insight at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our members at Rocky Mountain PBS. If you like what you heard, please support us by becoming a member at rmpbs.org. Hold up. 